0: Are we good? We're good to go? go. Yeah, excellent. Okay. Um,
1: Tech, tech. Stuff 2020 election podcast.
2: Hi, my welcome. This is Tick Tick Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Friday, the 14th of
3: August. I'm Adam Dudding, and I'm Eugene Bingham. TNR Koto Kato. Three times a week, we bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about this election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. Usually, we do that on a Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Well, that was the plan, but then Rona. So. Today, observant listeners will know that this is Friday, not Saturday, and our last episode came out on Wednesday. There are 36 days until the election.
2: Uh, yeah, 36, give or take. Frankly, at this stage, no one's quite sure. So here we go again, throwing the schedule out the window. <laughs> yeah, I don't imagine anyone's too bothered if a few TikTok episodes, oh geez. TikTok?
3: Adam, you've got to get over that.
2: <laughs> I'm going to take that again. Luckily, I don't imagine anyone's too bothered if a few tick-tick episodes turn up in their podcast feed a day early, but it's not just us. Before, I was just scanning through that list of key election dates that we have at the top of the show run list. So, Labour Party campaign launch, August the 8th. Yep, that happened. Dissolution of Parliament, Wednesday, August the 12th. Uh, no. National Party campaign launch, Sunday, August the 17th. Mm, that's not going to happen either. We're- we're only a week into New Zealand's 2020 general election campaign proper and already the calendar's getting torn up.
3: Yeah, and so is the political playbook, isn't it? I mean, this is politics, but not as we know it, thanks to this coronavirus curveball which hit us all on Tuesday night. Here's a quick recap if you're listening from the future and wonder what the hell we're talking about. Oh, welcome, by the way. 2020 was quite something. So after 102 days of no community transmission, on Tuesday night, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Director General of Health Ashley Bloomfield announced there'd been an outbreak in Auckland. And that sent the super city into alert Level 3 lockdown. That's the level where you can still get takeaways. And the rest of the country went
2: into alert level two. Political parties immediately suspended campaigning and people began to speculate about whether the election date might need to be pushed out. As we speak, on Thursday evening, it's still set down for September the 19th, but you'll hear from the interview with National Leader Judith Collins that she's adamant that it shouldn't go ahead then.
3: Yeah, so Judith Collins, as we said right at the outset of the Tick Tick podcast, Stuff's political gurus, Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass, had arranged a series of leader interviews to be rolled out during the course of the campaign. Last
2: week's came out on Saturday, but given how rapidly things are changing at the moment, we wanted to bring you this week's interview as fast as possible. So we'll get to that really soon. But first, Eugene,
3: what's been happening? Right, so Thursday saw the return of the 1pm news conference. By the way, can someone bring me up to speed on what's been happening on Emmerdale? Okay, thanks. Anyway, I got the sense that Ashley Bloomfield took a real deep breath as he dived into a bunch of updates and then partway, did you notice there was a little nearly there from him. So there was a lot to get through, so no wonder. There are 13 new cases connected to what they are now calling a new cluster. So that makes 17 cases in total within it. Some of them are relatives, including a Mad Albert Grammar people. Some of them are workmates of those original cases, and some of them are relatives of the workmates. Significantly, there were also updates on what happened during the trip some of the original four took down the line. They went to Rotorua and it's now emerged a day trip to Topol. One of the positive cases also visited a rest home in the Waikato, although at the time they weren't displaying symptoms. Oh, and there was one new case from a recent arrival that's unconnected to this
2: cluster, of course. Speaking of the board of facilities and managed isolation and things, it was announced that from now on, new community cases are going to be taken to managed isolation facilities to be cared for and to ensure there is no inadvertent further spreading of the disease. So this is a change from the past where people just self-isolated at home if they tested positive. It's more like the approach that was taken in Wuhan, China, where authorities quickly separated off people who had COVID-19.
3: And finally, we were told that today, Friday, there will be two briefings, one at 1pm 1 with the case updates, and then a second later in the afternoon to announce Cabinet's decision about what should happen with the alert levels. In other words, what happens after midnight Friday? Will alert level 3 for Auckland and alert level 2 for, for the rest of the country be extended or not? Interesting that despite calls from National for Radun to sit these press conferences out because of the election campaign, she fronted on Thursday and apparently she'll be fronting two of them today.
2: Right on with the interview. So, Stuff senior journalist Andrea Vance and political editor Luke Malpass sat down with National Leader Judith Collins on Thursday afternoon in Wellington.
0: Welcome, and how you doing? I'm doing great, actually. Yeah, you you're here in Wellington, but your family's in Auckland, which is which has obviously been locked down for uh, just over twenty four hours now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and another day to go, obviously. How, yes. How's the family?
1: Well, um, I'm ringing them every day, obviously, and. Um, I decided when I got the call for the prime minister about the lockdown that we would need to take some different action from normal. I wouldn't be home, and I was already planning to be all over the country as I have been for the last three or four weeks campaigning. And um, my husband and I decided that we discussed it, and he said, "You just got to do what you got to do." So what I got to do is I've got to be in Wellington. I've got to be with the with our very tight team here and working. Uh, to make sure that we have alternative policies to deal with what's happening at the moment, but also um, to do our job uh, of holding the government to account in the best way that we can and supporting the government too when they um, ask for or need help.
0: And when you got that call on Tuesday night, what was your, I mean, setting aside your politician's hat, what was your initial reaction?
1: Well, I was really shocked. So I had, um, like, you know, everyone else got, Somewhat complacent about um, COVID nineteen, uh, be cause basically we'd had one hundred and two days without any community transition. There'd been a you know b- bit of a celebration at the hundred days, and um, I was expecting something a call about something else because I'd been told the prime minister wanted to ring me. Um, before her press conference on a national security issue so I naturally in my mind anyway thought national security something's happened to either a diplomat or a, um, a soldier or somebody overseas and that would be I wasn't thinking this
0: okay well it's obviously put campaigning on its head you've suspended your campaign other political parties have but how does that um, affect your kind of your game face and your preparation and your state of mind it must it must be uh, you know difficult
1: well, there's um, looking at the positive. The positive is that I'm not having to get up at four four thirty every morning, and um, getting off to bed about uh, eleven or twelve, or as I did the other day, one o'clock in the morning. Um, so that is something. Um, but that's probably the only positive out of it. The other thing is is that. Um, Means that all the policies that we have announced, they're still um, relevant, but we also need to go over everything and make sure that uh, when we look at the particular fiscal outcomes, um, which is looking at about I think ASB have estimated that's costing the country about four hundred and forty million dollars a week. uh, That um, you know these are big issues that we need to take into account when we're costing our policy. So we're also looking at what's happened with the border and how um, that needs to be looked at as well. Just on that, I mean, um,
4: uh, as we speak at the moment, it's a little bit unclear when exactly the election will be. Parliament's uh, dissolution has been delayed. We should get some sort of information about it tomorrow. But assuming there will be an election some point this year, uh, what and given that COVID's just reared its ugly head again, I mean, what are the three policy priorities that you will be taking and putting in front of New Zealanders over the next wee while?
1: Well, even with the uh, obviously with what's happened, clearly uh, the border has to be a, a major policy plank for us now, um, and probably given significantly more emphasis than we might have thought. And, because, why, is that, and why is that? Well, because clearly the border has been breached in some way. Um, Certainly the evidence that I've heard and from uh, particularly I've been discussing it with Dr Shane Ritti, who, as you know, Dr Shane is uh, not only a a health spokesman, a medical doctor, but is, you know, Harvard trained. He's a very, very clever and experienced doctor. He's confirmed to me that there's no way that this could have been just lurking out the community, waiting to pop its head up after 102 days. It's clearly come in from some other source. We've um, I've heard today that the genome um, of the D, of of the uh, virus that's now turned up in New Zealand is now an Austra- is an Australian uh, comes from Australia as opposed to the main one that was here last time uh, when which came from the US. So clearly, there's something's happened. Um, the fact that the government has not yet been able to find how that's come in is concerning, but you know, I understand they'll be trying their very best. So clearly there's something around that border situation, um, either quarantine border in some way, that has let us all down.
0: But you, you and uh, Dr. Reddy are just speculating on that, aren't you? You, do, you don't have any evidence for that as yet.
1: Well, I, the evidence that he has, he's now finally had a briefing from the Minister of Health and the officials on um what they can tell us health-wise. So that is clearly something that we, um, and it, clearly Dr. Ritti has his own contacts in the medical profession. But um, if he tells me that this is what he knows, then he's more than likely right rather than wrong. Um I'm sure that there's plenty of ev- you know, work that's going on behind the scenes. We only know what we've been told and what we know from other sources because, after all, we're not the government. But um, that would be certainly one of the major planks. Obviously, the economy uh, and jobs is just unbelievably important now. When we're looking at losing $440 million a week, on top of the borrowing that was already happening of $1.3 billion every week, Clearly, there is um, a big issue for us to address. So, you know, health, obviously, as well. How how we move from here. Um, but the economy is going to be the the number one issue. So we've talked a lot, we've put out policy on infrastructure. Um, That's clearly very important to us, and we think that that there's a way through to help the economy as well as to keep people into jobs, but build productivity. These are issues that we'll be campaigning on. You've seen quite a lot of our infrastructure come out, certainly around um, transport, but there'll be other infrastructure policies as well. um, I don't think we can get past the fact, though, that this latest incursion or lockdown is something that if we can avoid it, we need to avoid this yo-yoing into and out of lockdown because that's clearly um, very significantly harmful to our long-term or medium-term economy.
4: And what would you suggest in that space? What, well, what, what, are, we releasing, what are you thinking about?
1: We're releasing our policy on that soon. Okay. So we're, we're um, obviously already had work going on, but um, it's very important. I think that we have a very um, well thought out plan because quite clearly, what at the moment is um, has not been optimal. Obviously, it's worked in some cases. And it's not hard to isolate New Zealand. I mean, we're an isolated country, um, surrounded by sea. But also, you know, in many ways, our border seems, um, even though we are isolated, to be closer to Australia than anywhere else, really. And um, you know, it's shown too this last week that all the talk about a travel bubble with, say, the Cook Islands is simply not on the go at the moment because we clearly haven't been able to stop the disease in our own country.
4: So um, you're, obviously from, you're obviously from Auckland. Um, what reports are you getting businesses that you know in your electorate um, that thought they were just starting to get back on their feet that are just going to be slammed by this? What are you getting?
1: Look, as soon as the announcement came out uh, from the Prime Minister, I... Received um, messages and phone calls from businesses, you know, particularly small businesses, uh, who feel like they just couldn't go on. Um, really, really hard for people, you know. They're looking at the loss of their business, but they're looking at their staff not having a job. But they're looking at their savings gone. Um, one woman said to me that her uh, she'd used up her savings during the last lockdown, which was effectively in her businesses. Of, is a you know is quite a close contact business. so it was she couldn't actually operate at all. so about you know six or seven weeks without any income. and um, even with the wage subsidy, it's not enough to pay all the bills. and um, she's that time of her life she's thinking, well, what's the point? And she's just looking at losing just about everything.
0: You, um, you mentioned the economy there as one of the priorities and then health was an afterthought. Well,
1: health is very crucial, but I see the health as very much part of the border security. I think what we know is that um, the border and the COVID-19 response, the health response to that are deeply linked. So obviously border, the COVID-19, the contact tracing, all those sorts of things are all part of that response.
0: So you do you like Jerry Brownlee believe that the government is, is hiding information or not being upfront
1: well it's it's what we've said to the government and I've and Jerry sort of just simply stated some of the information that we're getting from the public I mean we've said look I've said, look we, what we need to do is we need to basically triage any information we get in and make sure that we then pass it through to the government so that they can take some action so we've done that this morning for instance we had information in um, uh, and we've basically checked. The, you know, several of us had the same information. We checked what we could see from what we could tell of the veracity of it, and we've um, passed that through to the government today. So what we're we're doing um, is that we're going to be every time we get information like that, we're just going to, as I say, what's, package sort what, what, Oh, it was what around. Sort of it was around is it? the issues around um, uh, Topo, for instance. You know the. Um, but, you know, I just think anything we get of instances of people saying this is what they've seen happening or this is a concern or whatever, we're just going to package it up, obviously provide anonymity if that's what people want um, but and respect their privacy. But I think it's important that we do that. I don't think... Um, we're not going to hold information and then you know pop it out later in a gotcha moment. That's not. Mm-hmm. I don't think the public expect that from us, and nor should we. Because
0: you. So what you're saying is that you will take information to the prime minister's office first. You won't go out on the airwaves and. Yeah, and I use know it, it f- might be
1: disappointing for for some people that we don't, but I think it's responsible that we do the right thing. I mean, we are in um, a period of um, crisis, I think, and um, it is important. I think. Um, well, I know that we've we must be very careful about this. We've got people who are looking at not only the loss of health and obviously COVID nineteen seems to now show show in some cases long term health effects, um, but actually people's livelihoods. We've got to be really careful how what we do with it. But people do need a place to send their information in many ways because um, they, they you know, if they went if they wanted it in the media, they'd go and send it to the media in many cases. But they also don't know who in the ministry to send it. But we, we have MPs based all over New Zealand, um, and those MPs are still operating. They're just operating remotely, and um, except you know in Auckland anyway, and the others will probably most likely still be operating their offices. So we're saying, look, where you're operating remotely, keep doing what we used to do during the last lockdown, which is still operating from home, have our phones diverted, you know, got our laptops, we can do things. But when we get that information, um, I want you to send it through to us here. And so then we will triage it in our uh, meeting every morning that we're having uh, for the team here. And we will send it through to the government and make sure that we've got, because we, we, the way we see it, we might get you know four or five different reports on the same thing. And if we can put it into a package, and so this is what we we've been told, you might want to check this out.
0: So this is a sort of a, a, a new strategy. Is that in response to the criticism that Jerry Brownlee got? Because he's been accused of being a conspiracy theorist. So is it in response to that? And do you condone the way that he's carried on in the last couple of days?
1: Well, I think Jerry simply stated what he, you know, he noted um, a couple of weeks back or that there'd been a change in, um, we certainly noticed that there was a change in some of the language being used in government. And certainly we'd, I think most of us had noticed that, that suddenly there was more of a focus now on uh, things that might have been that certainly came after that 100 days of um, COVID free in the community so we're just uh, seeing how can we do the best that we can we haven't we aren't getting much information from the government but um, it's very important we can't campaign at the moment and we have to add a constructive um, take a constructive part Um, but the best way for us doing that, I decided with along with our team, is that we would uh, receive the information, pass it through. It's certainly something that I did. Um, I personally did, and I know others from our team did um, during the last lockdown. Um, so if I found some issues with you know I don't know particular business or whatever, and I'd pass it through to the minister or the Ministry of Health or whatever, so that they could um, you know sort the situation. What I would say is it's a bit disappointing to hear that we've got um eventually level three, we've still got the same businesses being told they can't open or, you know, these sorts of things, a level four lockdown. We need it would have been better to have had some more thought on that and a bit more input. So um yeah, we're here to help. But ultimately we are the opposition and we have to obviously point out issues, but we're not gonna be playing gotcha politics on it
4: so on that on that issue obviously you're the opposition you hear that you're here to hold the government yeah. to account uh but you have also expressed a very strong view that the election should the government mm-hmm. should consider delaying the, the election mm-hmm. particularly if this uh tomorrow afternoon we find out that the lockdown is going to be extended no one will be able to campaign um uh can you expand on that a bit for us? When would you like to see? When would you like to see well, an election? How damaging do you think it might be for New Zealand democracy if the election was on September 19, just at the end of a
1: lockdown? Yeah, I think it's actually quite damaging um, in terms of the ability for people to have a clear set of policies that they can see. Um, and it's not just our campaigning. I mean, because we'll continue if if the election is still going to be the 19th September, we will continue to do what we can digitally um, but we won't be able to do other things involving personal contact um, or even uh, a lot of papers because people will be frightened that they've got COVID-19 on them. I mean, that's the sort of reaction that we've had before. So we will have to completely um, in many ways change our whole strategy around how to campaign. But it's actually not about us really, is it? Because we've got A 19 September, what's it now, 13th of August? I mean, that's not very long. Plus, if you take into account, it's just over a month if you take into account that voting actually starts after that first week of September, you've only got a few weeks. Um, And then you'd say, well, it's a big distraction when we don't know, we can't even trace yet where, how, and how this COVID-19's come into the community. We know some people, obviously, who have it, but we don't know how they got it. And that's one of the big issues. So isn't it somewhat of a distraction? So um, I've written to the Prime Minister yesterday and I've said, look, um, we've got legal advice from the Electoral Commission um, that she can, as the Prime Minister, on her own bat." decide to extend out the time and delay the um, election, like most other countries who have had to face elections have done this year. And we've, that can go out to the 21st of November at no reason to do is entirely her decision. But if she wanted to go further and say, look, just be certain here, let's go for March next year or February next year, well, we can we can help do that. We can do that through Parliament being recalled and we would vote to allow that to happen. That then gives the government a clear ear to actually get on with sorting out this issue. It also basically means that people can not think, oh, there's an election coming up in the midst of all. Um, it's pretty tough going into any election when a country's losing $440 million a week and borrowing $1.3 billion to even know quite um, just how bad the economic situation is going to be that we will be facing. So we could do that. Ultimately, it's her choice. Um, if she wants to go ahead with an election under those conditions, um, she'll go ahead with those, those conditions. nothing I can do about it. What I have done is give her the options and say we would help her to do that.
0: What month would you like to see it happen?
1: Well, It's really up to her. I mean, I've said it's up to uh, November, as the law says that, you know, quite clearly she can go to November the 21st, her decision entirely. Um, After that, she could get Parliament's approval to go further. So we would say, look, we're only on a three-year term anyway. Um, I was asked the other day about, you know, a couple of countries that have um, chosen to go ahead with their own elections and do postal elections and that. I think that's about three of them um, that have done that, Korea, Poland and Serbia. Um, Yet again today I've also learnt that 56 countries have chosen to delay their elections because of the COVID-19 situation. I think I'm probably on the side of the, well I am on the side of the 56. I think it's like um, this is very uh, close to an election date and really it is important that people remember it's not just about the election date, it's the fact that they're actually voting for the next three years after that.
0: But you don't have a preference if it was the end of November or March or
1: April? Uh, We'd be happy with either in terms of that's the decision we have to deal with. It Look, it's on the 19th of September, we'll still be doing what we can, but um, we would be as a country in the extreme minority of of countries where uh, elections have stayed the same date.
0: So you you've previously said that you are very good in a crisis. Yes, um,
1: and well, we are in one. We? we are in one. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yep. So, how would you? What would you be doing differently? How would you handle this crisis?
1: Well, obviously, I'd have the information which I don't have at the moment, and I think one of the things, and um, the other thing is, I'd be sharing that information more freely with the opposition. What I found in the past is that if you give the information to the opposition then strangely enough, they don't use it against you normally. They actually feel obliged to uh, work with you. So I think that that would be a better thing to do. Um, you know, it's the Prime Minister's decided to go on her own on this with the government. They've decided to go on their own. Um, we're happy to help. So that's what we're, we haven't been asked for our help, actually. But we're just providing it. So that advice will be, I think that's the right thing for us to do. So I... People have, I've had to deal with a lot of crises over the years, uh, whether it's in portfolios like police or corrections, various things, people being killed on a job, people killing the wrong person, um, all sorts of things going on, shooting innocent people and killing them isn't isn't great. Um, but, you know, we've dealt with it and I've always fronted up and I've always told the full story that I can at that time, bearing in mind sometimes there's, there's real genuine national security or privacy issues that you have to hold back on for a while. But... Um, I always think the first thing in a crisis is not to panic and to get the best information you can and then and make sure that everybody can give you that information because and then to make decisions as you go, based on the fact that you're trying to deal with this particular crisis. those who who can't deal with crises very well are people who can't make decisions. And understand that you are never going to get everything perfect, but you do need to be able to just make the decisions sometimes so everyone can move on and know what direction they're working in.
4: you use the word there panic I mean, mm. do you think and you've also talked about the big cost that the lockdown is having on the economy um, i mean do, do you think that the government has panicked a bit in this last? Um, And since, or do you think the response has been proportional?
1: Well, I don't know, because I don't have the information other than uh, what you would have in the media. So I don't have any secret information. Um, I don't have the briefings, Um, although Dr. Shane uh, got a briefing today on health. But um, what I think is important is, and just because you've asked me um, what I think is important in a crisis for a leader, number one is don't panic. And I'm not saying that anyone has packed. I'm saying it is really important. That's just a general thing. The last thing, uh, the other thing is um, actually not being afraid to admit if something's gone wrong. People prefer um, their leaders to tell them something's gone wrong rather than hiding it, and that's really clear. It's like um, it doesn't help saying, well, you know, it uh, it didn't really happen or something like that. It's better to front up.
0: So, so, I mean, obviously, aside from not sharing information, which you clearly don't think the government has done with you, is there anything else that you would have done differently for this lockdown and the previous one? Would you have handled it any differently?
1: Well, I think it's always good to have a plan for after lockdown. And I think that's, um, and bear in mind, I'm working off the information I have, and I'm very aware that there may be other information the government has that I don't have. So I put that caveat on it. But clearly what's happened is that there has not been um, the the COVID-19 contact tracing seems to have been become very, we've all become very complacent. I put my hand up for being complacent on that too. Although I have to say that my diary is pretty scheduled. But um, I think that um, there has been a complacency as everyone just returned to normal. I mean, I was in... um, You know, beat out campaigning, everyone's busy shaking hands, um, acting just as we did before COVID-19. And the fact is, I think everyone just felt that, well, you know, we'd we'd knocked it on the head. Um, We'd had over 100 days without any community transmission. There's no other way for it to come in except through a border. Um, We live a long way away from any other country, and we believed that the quarantine boarding border arrangements must be must be good because we hadn't had it back that we could see that hadn't been picked up. So clearly, I think we all became very complacent. Um, there also doesn't seem to have been any readjustment um, as to some of the inequities that we saw during the first lockdown. And I say this in terms of businesses in particular. So, for instance, your green your green grocer, uh, or your local butcher. Um, what we're being told today, information we had today, is that if we go into you know, this lockdown, is going to affect them just as it did last time, even though dairies will be exempt, that there's been no readjustment of what is um, essential service instead of into a safe service. I would have thought the right way to go that would be to look at what's safe, not necessarily what somebody in, in a An officials committee has decided is essential. So I never, I've never understood why dairy owners uh, can be trusted, but butchers can't. So that seems to me one of those nonsensical um, decisions made in a committee, without any understanding that actually these are small businesses in most cases, um, and they have a very loyal clientele, and they have um, an expectation that they will be treated. Like dairy owners, or at least um, supermarkets, so I just think there's a, there hasn't seemed to have been an adjustment or a learning or a lesson, I should say really, a lesson from the first um, lockdown.
0: Do you have a plan for opening up? you said You said that there was no plan post lockdown, but post 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 lockdown into the future, what would um what would New Zealand opening up to the world look like under national?
1: Well, we won't be opening up if it's unsafe. Um, I think New Zealanders have a zero tolerance to COVID-19 in this country and they can't understand why with the sorts of borders that we have that that have in the past, our isolated country, um, have worked against us. um, That this is one time when you would think it would all be working for us. And of course it has worked for us generally, by and large. But um, the how we open up from that, that would be very carefully. I mean, we, I, I think that um, there is a, an abundance of caution about opening up without um, spreading COVID-19. I don't think it has to be a health response versus an economic response. I don't think the economic response is helped at all by the health response not working or the border response not working. I think, obviously, the fact that we're now having to, according to the ASB, Uh, costing this country around $440 million a week because of the lockdown. And the lockdown and yo-yoing in and out of it is the worst thing we could do. So we may have to have a new normal when it comes to um, post-COVID-19 for the second time. And that new normal may look a bit different from what our first normal was. And that could be certain industries are going to have to wait longer um, to be opened up or very rigorous plans around that border. I mean, I just think the border is the key um, to our economic, um, let's say, recovery. Is it the case, do you think,
4: that you and most other political leaders in New Zealand, are, the border will never be able to be watertight, surely? Well, why not? The, the number of people that have to work there, regardless of how they schedule the testing, there is always risk that it will come back in, right? And at that point, then you have to decide whether it's going to be a lockdown or whether it's going to be some other sort of policy approach. Now, obviously, you've just said the yo-yoing up and down is no good, and and you've said that a new normal might come, Might you know, we might have to get used to a new normal. But what does that look like? What does that new normal look like?
1: Well, I think the new new normal is not around allowing COVID-19 in here. I mean, there are people who write to us and say, to me and others, I say, us, it's not the royal way. Um... Who write and and say, "Well, you know you, you just you know maybe Sweden's the right way to go. Well, I think if you went out there to the public and told them that they'd say no. And people have, and we are very close to you know because we not only are we campaigning or have been, but also we are listening to people all the time in our electorates, that's why they stay pretty grounded in what they think. And I can tell you there is a tremendous amount of fear, and I haven't seen the fear this time is worse than the fear last time. That's the the strange thing, is that they think, well, hang on, we thought we'd sorted this, and now suddenly we haven't. So I don't know that we have to accept that um, there isn't, you know, we can't have a tight border. I think we can have a tight border. Um, In fact, we've been told that we had a tight border. We've been told by the government that it was closed down and that they went hard and early and all that. So we should be able to rely on it. Um, the issue is it's that clearly there something has gone wrong. And we always know that humans will make mistakes and that sometimes people do things they shouldn't do and then they don't front up and then we end up, someone else pays for it, which is probably what's happened. Um, and I'm only guessing that from, you know, logically speaking. It'll be no doubt some human error. But actually, um, there's no reason why we can't um, get this right because who has a a more remote border than we have. I mean, it's not like we've got a big fat state right next door to us. I mean, you know, if <laughs> we're like a very long way away from anyone. We have a very fine, very small funnel through which um, anyone can come. And if it's trade, well, we, can, we have ways of dealing with that too. We have a zero tolerance to biosecurity issues um, when it comes to agriculture. Why can't we have it to this? So you're down
0: with the elimination strategy because other countries have obviously, for whatever reason, decided that they're going to have to live with COVID. Mm. Um, but you are satisfied with the government's current strategy that we pursue elimination?
1: Yeah, I don't know that we could do anything other than that. Um, if we were to say, well, we have to live with some of it, um, I don't think the public would be ready to take that, and I don't think that they would be willing to. We are ultimately representatives of the public and the people if they're not if they if they don't want to have covid-19 you can see what's happening now you see the fear the fear is not only about covid it's actually also about the economy allowing covid-19 into our country and then having a lockdown has caused massive losses for people and it's only a few days what do you think's going to happen next week, the week after, if it continues? So we don't know what's being planned. I mean, we don't know what the announcement's going to be tomorrow. The government hasn't discussed it with us, um, whether or not they're going to have a, you know, everyone goes to level two or we come off it all together, we've got it all sussed, or we go, all go to level three or we go to level four. But I can tell you right now is that the current policy of a lockdown of level three in Auckland has meant that all sorts of other parts of the country are now suffering because, for instance, in Queenstown, as I heard this morning, um, they've been relying on Aucklanders travelling there and all of a sudden that's gone. So there's no, it's not like everything's that regional in New Zealand. Everyone moves around and people travel to other places.
0: OK, well, maybe let's take a break from COVID. I think that would be welcome. Yeah. And talk, talk a bit more about you. About me. <laughs> yeah. um, so you you've said that you'll do whatever it takes to to win back power for a national. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what 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 does that mean? Like, are you going to out dirty politics, personal attacks well, and, look, and I, even lying?
1: Well, I, it's very obvious that we um rule all those out. And when I say whatever it takes, I mean work every single hour of the day. I mean so I said like last night I actually had a, a you know an 8-hour sleep. Well, Actually, it was probably seven. Um, that's really good. But I will go everywhere, um, do whatever I ta- it takes. But that is within, obviously, the limits of what people would expect. I'm not going to partly. That means sometimes having to agree with the government, even though we're in election mode. So you know, you have to do what you have to do, which is the right thing to do. Is that so what that you meant when you said
0: it? Yeah, absolutely.
1: You- absolutely. So from my point of view is I've been asked to take on this job by my caucus. Um I would not have bothered putting my hand forward if I did not know that they wanted me to do it. And they want me to do it because they understand that we need to work every single hour of the day. Nobody would ever, who knows me and works with me, ever thinks that I'm sitting around doing a lot of contemplation. I love working and it's an enormous privilege to do this job. So I'm going to do my very, 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 very best, not only for our caucus but the National Party but also people of New Zealand. I'll do anything that they need me to do, obviously within the limits of the law and what's the right thing to do.
4: Prior to COVID, what are this government's biggest failures that you plan to try and point
1: out on the campaign? Well, before COVID, they actually just had a litany of failures, really. I mean, we had the uh, Kiwi Build, which would have to be the standout, you know, it's now going to be standout policy of total policy failure and an execution where, if you consider it was the Labour Party's policy for six years um, when they were in opposition, their last six years, and they came in, or the big hiss and a roar, $2 billion of taxpayer money, put aside for it. Um, a lot of promises continued to be made for, you know, well over a year, when it was obvious they weren't going to achieve what they promised. And um, the dial back came pretty much at the 11th hour, saying, oh, you know, that's not going to work now. So that would be a big one. Light rail up uh, Dominion Road from the Auckland CBD to the airport. Um that was a. That's another total failure. So what the government has shown is that they like to promise, but they've found it very difficult to actually deliver. And I think maybe it's because they're all in opposition for so long. Maybe that's because when they put those policies together, they didn't really think they were going to be in government. But whatever it is, there are enormously huge policies. Another one would be, obviously, I don't think child poverty worked out quite the way they promised, If you look at mental health, that's another area that um, we're really focused on. I'm really focused on that. Um, They took away the mental health nurses in police stations. And why would anyone do that? And they did. And they promised big on mental health. They've spent, what, about a half of what they said that they were going to. Um, It's a real failure.
4: You've laid out some pretty ambitious plans for infrastructure spending, Mm. um, mainly on roads, but also rapid transit and a bit Mm. of rail. Not a lot of detail yet on how you're going to pay for it. You'll be borrowing probably a billion dollars a year in order to pay for it. How do you plan to pay down the debt while sticking to your infrastructure promises? Or put another way, how is it that you can tell New Zealanders we'll be borrowing for this big lot of kit over here, but we'll be, you know, it's okay to borrow for that, but it's not okay to borrow for other things. How do you plan to do that?
1: Well, at the moment, to find out that we're currently borrowing $1.3 billion a week um, One billion dollars extra a year doesn't sound like much, does it? I just stick Sounds it on the like, bill. Well, I think if you're borrowing, and we have to borrow, um, you're going to have to. We have to borrow for investment, so people can see that there is a decrease in congestion in the roads. If they can see that they can get to four jobs as a as a tradesperson rather than two in a in a day, they they don't mind that. They actually be happy for us doing that. People don't mind governments borrowing. Um, what they do mind is when governments borrow the money and they don't see anything, any outcome for it.
4: So as long as the borrowing is on productive productive the world will that's increase pretty, productivity, for pretty, example. Yeah, exactly. So I yep. think
1: that's that's perfectly fine. But even that has to be within reason. Um, and there's no point just saying, well, let's all borrow all that money and we'll do these things. You actually have to have the plan to actually implement them. And what we've seen from our time in government, um, and I was you know, in government for that time, is that, we can actually put forward a plan, and we can actually implement. We do know how to get stuff done, and um, whether it's through things like the RMA Act changes, or or just you know getting rid of it, putting a new act, and whether it's fast tracking legislation, we can do that stuff. But we need to actually just be in government to do it. Can't do it from opposition.
0: But just to pick up on what Luke said, you, you have made the promise, or Paul Goldsmith has made the promise to pay down debt. Um, how, how how do you do that? Pay for these big projects, do that without austerity, without cutting things from the public service?
1: Well, we don't need to um, have any austerity. The only people talking about austerity is Grant Robertson, who keeps accusing us of it. We've never said we'd be cutting any services, and we've made that very plain. (laughs) But really, it is going to actually require us to actually build the economy in terms of growing it. So what I know is this, you can't actually tax your way out of a recession. You can't tax your way out of a financial depression. What you can do is you can grow your way out of it. And it is going to be necessary to borrow to do that. So that is, uh, if we have people who we're borrowing and they happen to have jobs that go with that, then that is actually going to grow, start to grow the GDP. It is going to be important to do that when having people working. So when Grant Robertson is talking about it and um, Paul Goldsmith's made a, you know, he said that the aim is to get back to 30% of GDP debt to GDP in about 10 years or so. Um, clearly, too, we've got a situation right now where to find out that we are losing $440 million a week and borrowing $1.3 billion right at the moment, um, we need to know quite how this lockdown works out, how long it is, how severe it is, what the impact is on our economy. So we're going to have to look at some of those numbers and see, is this doable or do we need to push it out a bit more? Um Paul Goldsmith's already you know, acknowledged that you know the 10-year thing is very aspirational. It's not a target. It's like something he'd like to get to. But actually, we're not going to do it at the expense of people's livelihoods or, or the fact that people who live in New Zealand expect a first world um, standard of living. And we would have to deliver that.
0: So what, why even mention it then if it's just an aspiration, especially now when people mm. are, are, are worried about, about you know services being cut?
1: Well, it was obviously an aspiration mentioned earlier this year, and um, since that we've gone back into, you know, a lockdown. It's easy to have no particular aspiration, and you know, if you, my, one of my views in life is you do have to have some um, goals. Uh, whether or not you achieve them, that's another matter. But if you don't have the goal, I can tell you, guaranteed you won't achieve it. Um, so that's you know, all Paul's doing is putting some. Uh, discipline and some rigor around the thinking um, of um, us all around how we can actually um, put policies in place and what policies we do. But you know, if we have some um, of the, if we reprioritize some spending off things like light like rail and it goes into roading, for instance, that's go, that's one way of getting money. It's also another way is to um, hold back on the contributions to the to the um, super fund for for some years. Those are some other things that he's talked about, but we've got um, we have arrangements in place. So as soon as the preview comes out, which depending on what the date of the election is, we'll have be able to fine tune some of those numbers, and that will then that's already organised to be and looked at by independent economists. So that um, by the time that we can, you know, we we put out our fiscal plan, it's not only fully costed but it's checked. What I've said to Paul Goldsmith. Um, is that under no circumstances should we feel we need to keep to a particular um, ten-year idea on this debt if that's not going to actually be sustainable. And we need to, you know, it's a goal, it's a, it's an aspiration, but it's not, it's not set in stone. It's not set in stone because number one, the economy seems to be getting worse, not better, and we have to be realistic about it. Back to you. <laughs> oh,
0: it's all about you. It's not really. <laughs> when when you were a minister, you had a reputation for getting things done, but also being willing to compromise and work with others across mm-hmm. the house um, to achieve what you wanted, the mm-hmm. necessary things. Yep. Um, you also have a reputation as being an, as an excellent boss who inspires loyalty amongst your staff. Thank you. But your caucus colleagues have previously indicated that they don't they don't like you what why
1: why is that? Well obviously they do like me because they've chosen me to be their leader. but they have previously oh, said well. nasty things about you. Have they really see I find it hard to believe Andrea um, <laughs> look every workplace has little um, differences. I've always been very strong in my support for my ministries. Uh, my portfolios and my staff and sometimes that's going to rub some people up the wrong way but but look I don't worry about it as I've said to many of them you know look, I've always been willing to work across the house I can certainly work within my party the fact that they've chosen me to be their leader I actually found um, our caucus meetings have just been actually frankly a delight since I've been uh, running them I always like to be in charge it always makes me happy um, <laughs> whether it's a ministry or an office or something else and I think um or a Caucus, and I've uh, found it um, actually a real delight. And I'm, I'm sure that some people have found that I've just as good a boss to, um, you know, as the first amongst equals as such in my caucus, as I am to people who work in my office. Um, I like giving people pretty clear direction about what the outcome is we want, and I'm happy to let them go off and do whatever they need to do to put that together. So I'm not a micromanager, but I do like good outcomes and... I always find that I always give people chances if they make mistakes because everyone makes mistakes. And what I've seen over the years is that the best bosses are pretty quick to uh, praise their staff in public and um, give them, you know, a bit of a, a, a not necessarily telling off, but certainly tell them they've done something wrong in private. So you won't see me telling off my uh, caucus colleagues in public if they if I think they've done something they could have done it better. I'll tell them privately, and that's what I do with my staff, that's one of the ways you get loyalty actually, don't try and humiliate people.
0: <laughs> have, have you had to um, tell any of them off?
1: No not really um, there's been the odd thing where people who have come to me to say to me oh, I'm so sorry to this um, and I've said well look you know mistakes happen, I'll make mistakes too um, just understand you can't have a, a work environment well I can't have a work environment that where no one's allowed to make mistakes because you have that sort of work environment you have one ruled by fear and you end up with nobody does anything in case something goes wrong. Um, We work in uh, an area in politics which has risks, and if you don't take some risks, you'll never get any reward. Um, So you just got to give people a chance. I mean, I well remember the time I um, rang up John Key and said, oh, I've just seen on TV that we should crush some uh, illegal street racers' cars. Mm. (laughs) And he said, good on you. (laughs) So, you know... (laughs) So off we went. <laughs> you did.
0: Famously, you did. Um, OK, well, just very lastly, last question, because I know you've got to go. Um, mm. You have been called a placeholder leader. Mm. Do you accept that you might have to <laughs> step down if you don't win this election?
1: I think every uh, leader of a political party should understand it is an absolute privilege to, do, to hold that position, Um I don't think there's anyone other than possibly Winston Peters who can actually dictate who's the leader of their party. I think it's one where I, um, I have no intention of being a placeholder. I am just really, really um, thrilled to have been chosen to do this. And I just think, you know, I know it's a tough job. I mean, look, if it's a tough job, then, you know, everyone would say, pick me, pick me. Um, I didn't even particularly ask for it, but I also understand that um, – it's one of those opportunities to show to my caucus colleagues that um, they've been right. And that rightness, where they're right, is that um, I am you know, someone who will do this job for them the best way that I can. And I'm absolutely, knowing all the issues that we're facing, absolutely focused on doing the very best job I can. I think we could, you just never know. You never know what happens in politics. It's like business. You never know what's going to happen and you just got to keep going there and focus on the people because the moment we're not focused on the people, they don't like that and nor should they.
0: Well, certainly you do never know what's going to happen next and politics, especially this year. Well, listen, thank you very much, National Leader Judith Collins, for joining us on the uh, Stuff's Tick Tick podcast. Thank you.
2: That's the Tick Tick Podcast for Friday the 14th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Judith Collins, Luke Belpass, Andrea Vance, Jake Price, Catherine George, Patrick and John Harderveld and Carol Hirschfeld.
3: You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go on. Go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back next
4: week. Ma te wa.